Welcome to this episode of the Dear White Women podcast. We're your hosts, Sarah and me, Sasha. I am super thrilled to be joined today in our conversations with a phenomenally dynamic human being. I remember when we first met, I was completely blown away by her presence, her intelligence, and her observational skills. Um, also, she's gorgeous. But she is Debbie Shear, a humorist, a speaker, and an MC, woman about town in Denver. And I am really grateful, Debbie, that you made the time to talk with us today. Thank you for being here. Me, Sasha, and I were super excited about bringing you on for so many reasons. But I think the crux of it, and we'll get into why you're so uniquely positioned to have this conversation with us, but we're all about having difficult conversations. And we you know, sort of make ourselves uncomfortable and our listeners uncomfortable. You bring a really cool angle to these conversations because you're probably one of the funniest people I've ever met between your Facebook posts and that sort of stuff. And I would love to learn from you and also have a conversation around some of the topics we're talking about, but how you use humor to have difficult conversations. Yes. Love it. So in terms of your expertise personally, on the topic, you know, we Dear White Women podcast, it's a lot about race and identity and having conversations about who we are, who we show up in the world to be. Can you tell us a little bit about why these sort of topics are near and dear to your heart? Yes. And thank you for your podcast. It is so fabulous and so necessary. So I appreciate you both doing it and bringing it to the table and kind of peeling back that layer, right? We always want to we walk around with like this hood that's just down too far, right, over our eyes. And so I appreciate you doing that. So for me, I always want to be really clear about this. I am a white woman and I have two adopted kids who are black and biracial. So my lens is pretty, you know, it's a small lens. It's one lens that I look through and that is as a white mom raising black boys. And so that's the only thing that I can talk about you know, comfortably, just my lived experience. So I want to be really clear, I'm not trying to take the space of women of color, who, you know, are absolutely need the space to talk about it. But that is just my lens that I show up with. Can you tell us a little bit about the latest post you made on Facebook talking about raising black boys, because that's something, you know, me, Sasha, and you guys can really talk about as well. But this post really struck me because it was at the crux of the conversations that led me, Sasha and I, to have these conversations about your little itty bitty babies are growing up to be perceived as young black men in America. Right. Right. And I don't know me, Sasha, what your situation is with your kiddos, but I have two boys and one is biracial. So he is much, he's really caramel is the color that he chooses to identify with his skin tone. Um, And his brother is, you know, is black. And so there's that entire dynamic of just being lighter skin and that brings its own stuff to the table. Right. But I was referring in that post that you're talking about my oldest, who is 12, just turned 12. He, you know, was an adorable black little boy, baby, just yummy and squishy and delicious. And now he's transitioned into what a lot of people in our society view as a threatening boy, a threatening black male. And it was me just observing that transition over 12 years of how people would respond to him as a baby and then a toddler. And then as he continued to age and where he's at right now, it's terrifying. 
as any for any parent, it's terrifying. And for white parents to view it for that lens of privilege, it's a unique experience. What do you notice right now when you say he's being perceived differently? What have you noticed society responding differently to him? Or like, were there specific instances that have come up recently? You know, I can't really say there's an act, you know, that is the thing that led me to make that comment. It's just a series of things that I think as moms we notice, and sometimes it's really hard to put our finger on. I mean, there's no more talk about him being cute. There's really very, very little talk about him being, you know, this handsome young man. And it just is a different, I guess the best way to say it energetically, it's what I pick up on as he and I move through the world together. And the way I see people respond when we go into the store and he maybe wants some more freedom as he should have, right? He's getting older. He wants more independence. I completely understand that. But watching how people respond to him when he is in the store and I'm not right by his side, but I'm still able to watch. And they, of course, don't know I'm his parents. So It's really a unique thing to be able to observe when you're a white mom of black kids because people don't put two and two together. So you can really see it unfold. What's been most surprising to you that you've seen so far, like in those situations, for example, in a supermarket? You know, it's just, gosh, again, it's not, he's not been called anything when I've been there watching, but it's just... It's almost like a body language that I observe from people. It's kind of like a tightening. It's a little bit of a, I don't know how to describe it any other way than that, like a tightening up of their body, a moving away. Again, not a bold and blatant in your face kind of response, but it's just interesting how people avoid, move around. Yeah, a non-engagement, I guess, in a weird way if that makes any sense whatsoever. I don't know me, Sasha, you might have a similar experience or. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense to me. And my boys are younger, six and five now, but I can tell like we, they're very, they have a lot of energy and they both are are mixed, half black, quarter Japanese, quarter white, Mm -hmm. and they look mixed, but we live in a very white area. And when we're in like the candy store or whatever and they're really energetic and there are a bunch of other kids who are energetic there is a different energy when it's them sort of separate from me that I can tell from other people and it's so tough because I want them to not feel it I want that to protect them from it but at the same time I can't protect them from what is a reality and what they need to be equipped to handle. And so, and I think they see their father, my husband, experience a lot of that, whether it's overt or more often than not sort of very subtle, almost sort of along the unconscious bias, implicit bias topics that we've discussed. And so I think it is such a tricky thing, but it is very present in their lives now. And I'm sure, especially, you know, with your boys being 12 and nine, that it is a much more constant presence. And as a mother, that is so scary because yeah, they're out there and they're going to be more out there in the world and you are going to be with them less. Yeah. Right. For sure. And they can't, you know, up to this point, they've been protected by my white privilege. Right. Right. I mean, that's the reality of the situation. They have, when we're out together, I'm a white mama bear and that goes a long way. And I know that. And I know that, you know, people don't cross that line 
when they're with me. And like you said, they're older and he's 12. He doesn't want to be with me anymore. <laughs> be real he this kid's going through puberty and i'm going through menopause it is not a joy for us to spend together. <laughs> in puberty i don't care who you are it's a shit show and so i get that like i don't want to be with him a lot of times and i worry and that was part of the post you know i worry about him walking home from school which he wants to do or riding his bike home from school and so you can't not worry about that because it's out there and we see it. So it reminded me of some of the conversations. We did an interview series and one of the men, Brandon Towns, had mentioned that it is often easier to deal with the overt racism, the hating comments, the hurtful stuff, because you can just put the barrier up and be like, okay, you go there, I go here. And that stuff, like you were mentioning, like the tensing up of the shoulders, the body language, the microaggressions are a lot harder. Yeah. When as a parent do you choose and I guess there's a couple of questions. Like as a parent of any kid, I've had this, you know, what age is it? Do I still intervene in certain social situations on behalf of the kids? And then when they're old enough, they just go on their own. And when do you mm. choose to insert yourself as a parent? That's just a thing that I think as parents, we wonder about when it comes to things like this, how do you process that? Yeah. That's a great question. That's such a hard question. For me, I think when it's super overt and verbally violent or scary, which luckily, thank goodness, I mean, you know, we have not been in that situation. But what's more troubling to me and where I really struggle is that area of all of my dear white female friends who identify as liberal white women who in their brain and their heart of hearts don't want to think that they're engaging in racist behaviors, don't want to think that they could possibly be racist. And so that is what it, I struggle with. I'm fine standing up, you know, in those moments where it's like, there's no choice. Of course you have to say something. But it's trying to bring people into a conversation so they won't shut down, so they'll be open. And at the same time, really honoring my son. He's super shy. He doesn't like engagement. And he's 12, right? So I don't know a lot of 12-year-olds, you know, want to engage in that way. But it's respecting him while hopefully really just leading by example. And hopefully he picks up some of that so he can, you know, he's got to develop his own style. But it's tough. It's I'm sorry, I don't have a good answer. I wish I did. It's just such a, a tricky, nuanced thing. And I don't know, you two have found, you know, trying to engage women in these conversations. It's not easy. It's not. And I wonder if sometimes, therefore, it's easier when people are sitting back and listening versus actually face to face having conversation where you have to take it personally, you have the privacy in our format mm -hmm. to process mm -hmm. in your own time, because I think any change happens you do have to have a moment of silence with yourself and take in information and kind of run it through your system and see, does that make sense? Is it possible that what I said was reflective of a racist worldview? Right. You know, you do need to have some of that time. But I don't know. When do you call people out or educate or what is the right platform? Whoo, girl. Just coming in hot today. <laughs> <laughs> When is the right time to educate? You know, I have taken this view now. It's like sex ed education, which I've spent a lot of time in that field working and with my kids. And I don't feel like there's ever a, okay, tomorrow I'm going to sit down with my neighbor and have the conversation. Although that's where many of us find ourselves. I think in an ideal world, it's just a fluid conversation that starts and never stops, right? 
And it's always happening. It's like sexuality education. You don't sit down with your kid at 16 and say, let's talk. We're going to spend two hours and then we're never going to mention it again. Although that's what most people would prefer, right? And especially with race. It's anything that makes us squirmy. We just, we don't want to do it. And so I think it's, whoo, and race is a tough one. White privilege is a tough one because people will just shut you out. And they will shut down and cut you off. And then there's no conversation to be had. So it's really an interesting exchange. I've noticed in one group setting, and I adore every single one of the women who were at this conversation, but the topic turned to the Black experience in America relating to a book. And pretty much everyone was like, I'm kind of sick of talking about this. Why do we have to talk about it again? And I'm like, oh, that's fascinating that you have the option to even say, like, can we just be aware that you have the option of saying you don't want to have this conversation anymore? Right. And maybe that's just the first step, right? Everybody's, it's all on a continuum and everybody, what's the saying, like meet people where they're at. That's the best way to educate. But even having them have that aha moment of, wow, you get to check out. What a glorious gift to be able to check out. And now let's think about all the people who never have that option to check out. But you're right. Debbie, though, I have a question for you in talking about these conversations and how difficult or sort of shutting down they can be for people, especially when you talk to friends. And I have this issue, too, in talking to people who are close to me, who've known me for a while, and still we have difficulty talking about this. Or I feel like if I bring it up, it's too sensitive. And even though Sarah and I have these conversations with each other, it's still very hard to do in person. What sort of tools do you use, especially I'm so curious to hear about humor and how that works and that plays into conversations to really get some conversations off the ground or to get them past that point where people want to stop talking or shut down? Good question. Well, I hosted a couple of book clubs and I felt like that was a great intro because people had to actively show up, right? They had to read the book. That's step one. They had to commit to showing up. They had to make the time to show up. And once they were here sitting in a circle, I made a natural assumption. Okay, you all want to be here. So now we can dig in. So that's, I like book clubs. I like small, intimate gatherings. I think it's a good way to engage in conversations. But for me, what I have found that's been helpful is really trying to say what I think is on their mind that they don't want to say and being the first one to say it. You know, being the first one to admit, hey, I have thought these things. It is an awful, right? And I feel like once we can do that, people just go, okay. She's not going to be a judgy bitch and we're going to be okay. And now who's to know if I'm not judging secretly. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) No, because I know how scary it is. And so I think if I can just let people know, I have thought those thoughts, I have felt all of that and I have black kids and I still have thought those things and participate in that and on the daily and screw up royally. And it's okay. Like no better, do better. So let's get busy. And I think that has helped. And yeah, just being completely transparent with how far I need to go. Do you think it's all of our individual jobs to continue to do work on hosting and like forcing these conversations, creating opportunities, I guess is a nicer way of saying that by creating book clubs. I'm thinking, you know, as 
listeners to the podcast, for example, should everyone be hosting? A, I guess Misasha and I've talked sometimes about sometimes it feels so contrived. I yeah. should reach out oh, to that person of color because I like them. And if they were white, like it almost feels like you're making too much of an effort. So then isn't it fake? Or, you know, if I'm creating a book club, it's like too much of a conscious decision, right? When is it too forced or is it just something that we should all be doing? Well, I'm going to be honest about this. And I did get pushback for this and I own it and I hear it and I didn't care. I made the book clubs exclusively for white women. And I did that for two reasons. One, a lot of women of color who I know had said, we are tired of educating your asses, get with the program and do the work. And I thought, well, then you certainly don't want to sit in my living room and God forbid be tokenized and God forbid have to ask, answer every question. It's not your job, right? It's, I feel strongly it's our job as white women to fix, clean the dirty diaper that we have created for sure. And so I did get pushback on that. I heard it. I get it. But I also thought I didn't want my friends, women of color to be in that space. Like I didn't think they needed to shoulder that, right? Take that burden on. So as far as you saying, you know, how much, how far do we push? How I feel strongly that if there, if you have enough women who are willing to really engage in the conversation, and that's an entirely different conversation about how deep are you willing to go? Because if you're just going to do a book club and then say, I'm done, I'm good. Look at me. Give, where's my sticker? Where's my scratch and sniff sticker? I did it. That's bullshit. But if you're willing to sit there and say, who are my people that I can surround myself with to really push me and help me grow and we can all become better humans and change this world for the better, then I think, shit, do one every two days if that's what it takes and you have the people in your circle who are willing to participate. I love that. One of my book clubs literally was like, hey, can we do White Fragility? Can we do like a special book club? And I'm like, yes! I'm so excited and so grateful that predominantly white book club that everybody's like, you know what, we're on board, we hear what you're doing. And it maybe has nothing to do with me. But it's a conversation that is currently taking that community, that particular group of women. And I'm just so, so excited for that conversation. Yeah, that'll be great. I'm gonna have to get on this book club train. Yes. Uh, Yeah, my book club. Well, it was just a drinking wine club because we all had one-year-olds at the time. So we're going to have to get that back together again. We may be actually, we call ourselves winos with a reading problem. Gotcha. I get it. Yes. So I don't know. I mean, I think the conversations, they should have started a long time ago. I admit I wasn't having this level of in-depth conversation 15 years ago. No way. How shameful, right? That's terrible on me. But I think that starting him and I tell people, just start where you're at. If nothing else, if now you understand why you shouldn't say you're colorblind, hallelujah, what a step in the right direction. Thank you. And now keep going. I was just going to say before I cut you off, Sarah, that those small steps are so important because I think you know, especially now as we're heading into sort of the start of the election cycle, you get inundated with emails and just things are really shitty. And it's so easy to sort of shut down and say, like, this is overwhelming. I can't do anything. But it is such it is the tiny things that will make the difference. So that point that you just made, Debbie, I think is so important to focus on and think small things start where you are, little small steps. Yeah, absolutely. Do you both think that the same 
idea of small steps and these kind of conversations applies to other topics like gender identity or sexuality or other things that come up in this election cycle or abortion. Like, how do we do that? How do we have these kind of conversations? Because I feel, and maybe I just haven't done enough research, but I feel like in the field of race and that, there's a lot of books and references and people like, does the same exist for all these other topics? Do we do book clubs for those? Or is there other ways to have those conversations? Well, I think one of the challenges has been if you're if we're talking specifically in just in this group of white liberal women who identify as feminists, if this is the population, and I know it's broader than that, but I'm just using that as an example. These are the women who feel like they've already done the work around abortion. You know, most women who I know who identify as feminists say, of course, we're pro-choice. Like, this is, what are you kidding me? Like, the candidate absolutely has to be pro-choice before we will even utter their name. And then we want them to be unapologetically pro-choice, which is, I'm all for that. But I think when it comes to race, we're not quite there yet. We're not there yet. And I think the same technique absolutely can be used for all the conversations. And what I try to tell people is, are you willing to go there? And by go there, I mean, are you willing to get pretty uncomfortable and feel yucky? And you'll know when you're feeling yucky when you go, what you said, Sarah, earlier, ah, I'm just done talking about this. Can we just be done? That's a glaringly beautiful signage that your, you know, your privilege is showing up front and center. And then are you willing to push past that and keep going? And so I think it's the same model can be used for any topic, all the topics that you were were talking about. And I look at it's all social justice stuff. So, you know, we have to be talking about all of it. So where does humor come in? Because as I said before, when we were before, I'm like, I'm more like touchy feel like that's my energy vibe, but I know that I resonate when people use and I can't I don't know enough about humor to even describe how you write and you speak, but mm-hmm. it's so appealing. Is there a study to this? Is it just what naturally comes out of your mouth and brain? Like how do you use humor? Because I feel like I would probably try to make a joke and then wind up being mean without meaning to. Yeah. Yeah, I get it. I've done that many times. I've been told by people, <laughs> wow, that was a little mean. My kids tell me that all the time. But <laughs> I think for me, it's just partly who I am. But there is definitely a science to humor. There's a science to laughter. We know it happens to the brain. We know you can't really experience two emotions at once. So if you're laughing, you're giving yourself this like much needed pause to breathe and take a break and then get back in it. And so I think being able to infuse the conversations with humor when it's appropriate, and that's the biggest question mark, right? What I feel is appropriate. 10 other people say, screw you. We're never going to even, you know, we've got to block that one. She's dangerous. And so appropriate humor is a weird phrase anyways, because it's so subjective. But I think to me, it's just, When I feel like people are about to go over the edge, I try to pull them back slightly with something that I deem as funny. And again, it doesn't always land, that's for sure. I've definitely had people go, oh, they're falling off the cliff. I did not do that well. I am terribly sorry. And so, and other times it works. So I don't have a specific answer. It's more of a nuanced feel. And writing is so different from being in in front of a live audience. Because at least I love doing this work in front of a group because you can read the crowd 
hopefully more, which you don't have that luxury when you're writing and you just have readers who are going for it. Did that answer your question? I'll have some follow-up questions. So I think Misasha's positioning herself to ask something. Okay. I mean, I think humor is so necessary. I often default to sort of the sarcasm side of humor because that's my personality. I think Sarah's just like completely nodding like so hard her headphones are going to fall off right now. So I can really relate to what you say about, you know, the tricky nature of humor and when it comes into play and how it comes into play. I have no and it, you're right. It is really hard. You have to kind of read the room, but you can't read the room when it's just you and a whole bunch of faceless people totally. that you're, yeah. Totally. And I think, you know, I try to follow the premise, do no harm, which again is relative. I try not to talk about these things in a way that I think is going to be offensive. And when I do share these topics, I really try to pick things that I have a very unique lens. You know, I have an experience to go off. And then at the end, you just tell people to calm their tits. That always seems to work somehow. <laughs> I don't know. When things get too heated, you take a break and say, everybody, calm your tits and let's get back in it. And it just we just keep going. I don't know. It's a tough one. Do you find a lot of the humor is about self-deprecation, like your experience, not even self-deprecation, but like stuff about your experience? Or do you joke about other people? And then my separate question was, I felt like when we went to lunch, you mentioned yes. there was one topic that you would never have humor about. And can you talk to us about that a little bit? Maybe you what? don't remember. Maybe we were. <laughs> but to answer your first question, I can't really use humor when I'm talking about other people because I don't know their experience. And I feel like when we try to do that, it comes across as almost being fraudulent in a weird way. So it's always... Well, not always, but most of the time, 99% of the time, it's things that I experience, live my life, my family, my observations in the world. And so I try to frame it from that lens because really at the end of the day, who can argue with that? Right? I can't argue with your lived experience. I can say you were hurtful. That was shitty. You shouldn't have said that, but it's your lived experience. So I don't know. And then the topic that I wouldn't joke about. Like, I feel like it was something like race or the kids or something. I can't remember what it was, but. Well, and I just want to be clear for people who are listening, because I think you said something that just sparked something else. When I talk about humor, I try to be clear that I'm not using humor to joke about things to dilute the seriousness of what we're talking about. And sometimes we see when people do that, right? And it just makes a mockery of the subject. And that's sad to me. I try to use humor as a way so people can pause and take breath and have a giggle and recalibrate and get back in it. And I think when we use humor and we're laughing, we're just naturally more willing to be open, which means we're more willing to be vulnerable, which just pushes the conversation forward. So I do think there's a difference. And I hope that I do this, the latter and not the first. I'm sure I've slipped up for sure. But that's where I try to focus. I don't know if I said I wouldn't use humor to talk about if there's something that I would never use humor to talk about. I mean, I've used it to talk about some pretty hairy things. Nipples? Um, nipples. Get it? Is that hairy, what you just said? Hairy things. Hairy See, I was nipples. trying to be funny. <laughs> yes, I was funny. I just wanted to make sure I heard you correctly before I introduced you. <laughs> that is funny. So right there. <laughs> don't cut that out. That is just showing you funny. <laughs> Look at you, Sarah. 
But I think all to- I believe strongly any topic is very approachable if we used humor in the right way to crack it open. I'm like, is there a way to give an example? But I feel like it's such an organic thing that it might be difficult to be like, go, like do your shtick, right? It's not. I can give an example of something that, and it might not be funny to people and it might. So my mom passed away in September of 2016. It is still to this day, the most tragic, gut-wrenching, awful thing I've ever gone through. And it gutted me in a way I didn't ever anticipated. I didn't know how can you, you can't understand death or grief until you're in it, right? We all get that. I didn't go back to see my dad until January of 2017. And I just had, I knew I was going to cry. I knew I was going to have all these things that come up. I knew I was going to be a shit show, a train wreck, just a sobbing mess. And I was totally a rock star, solid. My dad picked me up and I felt good, you know, or no, he didn't pick me up, but I went to his doctor's appointment to meet him and we get home and I was feeling pretty good. And I walked in and I saw my dad had changed out her old dish drying rack, which was like probably 50 years old. And I'm sure in just had so much salmonella on that thing. And God only knows what else, tuberculosis. I have no idea what was living on that dish drying rack, dish rack. And he changed it out with this gorgeous stainless steel, black, shiny, beautiful dryer rack. And I looked at that and thought, what the, you know what I'm going to say. And I lost it. And I cried for about an hour. And so that, you know, grief is not funny, but talking about the triggers that trigger us and how they're so unexpected and we never know when they're going to hit, that dish rack sent me into the fetal position, sobbing in the room for an hour or so. And I was like, well, there you go. Everything else I thought would get me didn't, but that fucking dish rack just killed me. So that's not... I mean, it's a little out of context because I told that in a storytelling show. So it had more context around the story. But I think it's things like that, you know, trying to deal with people on the topic of grief. And Lord knows our society does a shitty job of getting us ready to talk about that. But we need to be talking about it. So how can we do it where we infuse a little bit of laughter that is appropriate? So I could totally go off topic because I have... The Japanese experience of dealing with grief, dealing with a dead body and dealing with closure is so wildly different than how we do with it in the United States to the point where, you know, my dad died. They made sure they were like hovering as we said our last goodbyes in the hospital just so they could like roll the bed and make it flat so his body didn't rigor mortis in like the angle. And then they wheeled him away as fast as possible. and We never saw him again. In Japan, they preserved my grandmother's body for several days in like dry ice pack and it was like crooked or whatever. And we had to physically touch her, wrap her body in the like the thing you wear to cross the river in the faith or whatever, you know, whatever. And then make sure makeup is applied. We carried her body into the casket, placed flowers lovingly, like talk about, you know, probably my cold dead fingers, like cold, cold body. And you watch it go in, you take it to the crematory, you wheel it into the thing, you wheel it out, you pick up the dead, burned bones and put them in the That urn. was the worst part. Right? That was by far the wow. worst part for me. 
Yeah. The bone fragments. Yeah. So if you're ever using chopsticks, you never have hand anybody anything giving chopstick to chopstick because that's the only time you use it is when you pick up the person's bones with another person and you put it into the urn together. Whoa. But the, Fascinating. the closure you feel and the grief you feel through this two-day process of mourning the person and their wow. spirit and all of it is so different than like the shame and the quick and the bye-bye, the cleanliness that you have over here. So, Totally. Anyway. Interesting. Hmm. I like that. So that was a total side note. <laughs> non sequitur. Let me ask you two a question. In your experience doing this podcast and talking to white women, what do you think is the biggest hangup for women to not, what is causing them to not be able to dig deep? And I know the answer is white privilege, but I mean, even beyond that, what is that about in your experience? If I had to take a guess, first off, I think it ties into something that you alluded to, Debbie, and that I've spoken about in the opening of this podcast, is that there was no skin in the game. It was not personal because until that point, I was predominantly surrounded by white people and Asian people. I didn't know people that it mattered to as much. And then when Misasha married her husband and had children who, like her and her whole family, I love deeply and I care Mm. about, and having these conversations made me go, oh shit, like... I need to be vested in this conversation and do my part and have these conversations with my family and with my people as well, because it was personal. And I think it's very easy if you look at the stats around, I mean, even not even stats, like the bubble effect, right? You surround yourself with people that look like you, that act like you, that talk like you. I think that's where the political divide happens. Like, it's not pleasant as a human to feel uncomfortable. So we tend to go with what we know. And so I think people, my gut is that a lot of people don't have that personal connection or reason to do that. Right. Yeah. I think I was, the term I would use is like a convenient activist, you know, like when it was convenient for me and when I had time, I would be all in on social Mm -hmm. justice issues. But I largely, before I met my husband and before I lived in different countries, I really was able to benefit from being able to shut that off, you know, and because I could pass as white, because I felt very strongly about issues, but they weren't in my face every single day because of how I looked and who I was friends with. And I think learning, learning that there are so many people who can't shut those off. And I think that for a lot of white women, that is the step that they are stuck at, right? Because you can be a very convenient activist. And in the Bay Area, we have a lot of white liberal women who are at least liberal claiming, right? And they'll get behind a cause and that cause will last for like a month. And they're like, great, we solved that, you know, we're on to the next thing, Um, but we haven't. And there are bigger deep seated issues. And I think the problem is we're always that it's largely looked at as like a surface layer, right? We fix the surface issue, but what is hard to understand for white women and white people, but white women is the history behind why these are built into our societal fabric basically in the U S. And so if we don't unpack down to that level, if we're not willing to do that and we just try and fix the surface issues and we feel really good about, you know, whatever, 
right? Vote has happened or whatever, small change. So basically, I like to think of this as like, you know, your mortgage, like you have the principal and the interest, but we have as white women or as society has been continually sort of paying the interest, fixing the immediate surface level issues with a vote or a referendum or something, but not looking at the systemic issues that are like the mortgage principle, right, that we have not dealt with, because that's way harder. Right. And then I had said, both of those things make sense. And in talking to some friends recently, their real hang up is on that word racist. And I think because we live in this binary culture, you know, our society is so you're either gay or straight, you're either male or female, right? There's nothing, we struggle with things living on this continuum. And I think people, white people specifically, if they own that they're racist or a racist, which that little word letter makes all the difference for people when they're talking about it, it's a struggle for them because they think, no, my uncle John is a racist and this is what it looks like and I don't fit that mold so I can't be. And there's such a struggle to then even have a conversation about what that could look like that people can't get past it. Instead of just saying it's a word, and like all words, it has meaning. And this word is a big word and it lives everywhere. It's like oxygen, right? It's just all around us. If we treat it like that, instead of saying you're either this or you're that, well, that's not doing any of us any good because we have nowhere to move, right? It reminds me of two different things. One was this idea of, you know, what they put forward in White Fragility, which is this idea that racism is a societal construct and we are raised in that system. So unless you name it, you almost don't see it because it's like the water that fish swim through. They're not aware of it. It just is. And then it's actually about our individual prejudices and discriminatory behaviors. And that's what we can manifest. So if you can do that, as opposed to putting this label on, I am a racist, we live in a racist world and I might say or do or think or you know, things that, you know, show that behavior. That's a very different way of personalizing it. Right. So it reminds me of the Red Table Talk episode where Jane Elliott was brought on and she did, you know, several decades ago, this brown-eyed, blue-eyed experiment on kids and told them that one was better than blue-eyed, brown-eyed kids. Like, blue eyes, you're better than the kids with brown eyes. And did this whole thing. It was filmed. It's fascinating if you haven't seen it already. I'm tempted to say she's in her 70s now, but she came on the show to basically say, we're actually, race is a total construct. And if you go all the way back, we're all born of the humans in Africa. And what if we were to radically go and say, there is no race, we are not of a different race, we are one race. And I almost find like, because we've been raised in such a society where race has been attached to value, I find that intellectually fascinating and yes it makes sense but in a realistic way difficult to unwind everything and all the emotions and the tangles of it but yes i would love to believe that we are all one race the human race it sounds very nice to say that right i hear you i know you both have to go and stuff but i think when i think about the biggest challenges that i face or that i see happening with having these conversations and i don't know if you've experienced the same thing social media is so great for so many reasons and it's so harmful for so many reasons and i think we are now in this period of time i don't know what the official name will be where people are so afraid to say anything wrong that they choose not to say anything 
And they feel that if they do have a misstep, they're attacked for it on many different fronts. And so they develop this attitude like, screw it. I can't say anything right, so I'm not going to do anything. And I would love to see a shift in that. And I know a lot of that is white fragility, right? Like you got called out, it didn't feel good, and now you're pissed. And you're taking your little toys and you're going home. I get that piece. But I think to have movement and to keep people open, we have to figure out a way how to have these conversations. Otherwise, we're just going to have a shit ton of people grabbing their toys and going home. And nothing is going to, you know, you're going to be constantly paying interest. Mm-hmm. Right. And no principle. And this is hard because in my magic wand waving miracle world, I would love to have no social media. And I feel like conversations and real relationships from, you know, just a human point of view are so critical. The face to face, the shake hand, give hug, like that is what is good for us as human beings to help our fundamental level of thriving and living. And so I do find that it is, I always say, I say stuff and I have an opinion, but I have the asterisk, you know, I reserve the right to change my opinion based on future information. Right. And I find it's a lot easier to say stuff, though, than writing it down, because I do feel still paralyzed that words and tone and everything get misinterpreted when you're just doing it in writing and you don't have the opportunity for the back and forth, the follow up. Yes. And so how mm-hmm. do we take those conversations and say, hey, you want to hop on a phone call? Hey, you want to have a face-to-face? You want to go to coffee? I would love to dig this out a little bit more and have yes. and talk about it. Is that the way? I don't know. But when you find that you're having some of these conversations, because you do write thought-provoking pieces on social media. Comment. I think you brought up a really good comment about social media. I think one of the challenges, the beauty is we all probably have expanded our circle so much so because of social media. And so that's a great thing, right? Like I know I am friends with more women of color because of social media than I would have probably ever met any other way. So I think that's positive. But I think to your answer, I do believe strongly that the only way that we will truly make progress is by having that connection and conversation and building stronger communities. And I think that is best done in person. I mean, I think it's great to add social media into it, especially for people who don't have access, right? You can imagine living in a rural town of like 500 and that was your saving grace. That's huge. But I think the work, yeah, needs to be done in person if possible. And that makes me think, you know, what better way to build community than to have once you bear your soul in small groups where you're having conversations like this, I feel like you can really, if you sort of go into it with the intention of having each other's back and you really want to help grow together as people, then what better way to bond together as a small community than to say, hey, look, I want to have these conversations. Let's do a book club. Let's have these small circle conversations. Let's, I don't know, let's grow together. And I think for hosting a book club, I will say this to anybody who's interested in it. It is a fair thing to ask your participants, what does that look like for you? Like, what are you wanting to get out of this book club and how will you know you've arrived? Because I think there are a lot of people and no fault of theirs. They think I did it. I sat, I did a book club about white fragility. Good check done. Next is what you were talking about. And so I think it's really challenging people to say, how are you truly going to show up? So we know that you're really committed to doing this work. Well, and that's to me. I have said this before, and I'll say it again, like, I don't like this word woke, 
or arrived. I feel like no. it's a continuous process for as long as we're alive. I mean, we're always learning, Absolutely. growing and changing. And so to me, that's, if you can embrace that mindset, then I feel like people are in the right space. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. I agree. Do you find that with your stuff, Debbie, you do have more satisfaction and impact when you're having your live conversations versus social media? Yes, because I think it's super easy for people to engage in social media, but then there's that extra major step that needs to happen or commitment to move from social media engagement to in-person conversations. So I find everybody who is actually willing to show up to an in-person conversation has already just by showing up made a commitment because our world it's so easy you sign a form you click on this and we just feel good right and so it's really i do find that there's way more engagement when people show up and there people are afraid to engage on social media it doesn't seem that way because most of us are total assholes on social media the way we respond to somebody is vastly different from how we would respond face to face. And I've reached out to people and said, let's pause and let's meet for coffee. Because I don't think this conversation would continue in this way if we're face to face sharing coffee or tea. So let's do that. And so I do think there's more progress that obviously will be made face to face. Always. I hope. That's interesting because me, Sasha, and I've been talking with what's, you know, we're loving the podcast. We're going to continue to do these episodes and the content. We're in a role, all this sort of stuff. And we're thinking, how do we engage on the next level? What is the next step look like? And we're like, is it a virtual book club for people listening? Is it, you know, in-person meeting? We've just been mulling over what that looks like. Is it just a online platform? But the more you're saying that, the more I feel like for the people who are truly vested, it would be something maybe more face-to-face, even if it's virtually face-to-face, just engaging with people Mm -hmm. as opposed to just words without any facial expression attached to it. Right. Yeah, I'm with you on that. I think being able to look at someone and see their reaction and really feel heard and understood on going both ways is so important. Yeah. Thank you so much for... Thank you. Well, thank you for having me. It was really important conversation. So I appreciate you for having me on. Totally. I think it was fascinating. If you love what you're hearing, please subscribe to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a rating and review while you're at it. Also, if you're looking for some great email, who isn't, sign up on our website, dearwhitewomen.com, and get our weekly email every Wednesday that gives you special bonus insider tips. You can also find us on social media. Sarah, can you tell us where to find? Absolutely. On Facebook and Instagram at Dear White Women Podcast and on Twitter at DWW Podcast. Find us there.